we are the reason they're suffering. Therefore, sh shouldn't we take on some of that responsibility and try to fix what we broke? This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bears. If you've read enough headlines about the environment and wildlife, it won't be long until you see one like kill wolves to protect endangered caribou. In simple terms, the suggested actions by some government-funded researchers or those with a vested interest in killing animals make sense. If we remove the predator or competition, the population of an animal targeted for conservation will increase. But that's not how things work in the real world, particularly when policy writers and elected officials ignore overwhelming scientific evidence and focus on easy answers that won't have a lasting positive impact. Charlotte Daw, a campaigner with the Wilderness Committee, penned an outstanding article on this for The Strait, an online magazine recently. And she joined Defender Radio to discuss the concept of killing animals to save animals, science-informed decision-making, and how we can all be a part of lasting, compassionate solutions for the environment. So I read this great article that you wrote in the Georgia Straits, uh, which is a wonderful online media outlet, about, uh, well, the title, I think, explains what it's about, Our Obsession with Killing Some Animals to Save Others. Uh, and this came out in mid-February. And, I, you know, I'm going to let you maybe just explain sort of the, the, the thesis of what you were writing about overall. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm the conser conservation and policy campaigner for the Wilderness Committee. And um, so I'm always I'm always looking at what people are like, what the government's planning for species at risk, how they're going to help recover certain species. Um, I'm really involved there. And so I just saw this growing trend of new proposals to kill animals in order to recover other animals. Um, and and um and the, the, the so the issue is is that it's it's not like they're it's not like they're choosing to kill animals as a last case scenario they've tr as if they've tried every other um option to recover the species and nothing is working and so this is their only option it's not like that basically killing killing an animal to s killing the predator or um, a prey species that's linked to increased predation is usually the first thing that governments look to um, as a, as a measure to try to save an animal. So um, like a good example is Chinook salmon. I mean, there's a million reasons why Chinook salmon are declining um, stream, like habitat loss from us um, destroying their streams and their spawning grounds, um, polluted waterways, overfishing. Um, we ha also have the threat of um, fish farms that are transferring disease. But the government is now talking about in order to save Chinook, we must kill seals and sea lions. Mm -hmm. And I feel like these are such drastic conservation methods methods they don't uh take into consideration the complexity of the ecosystems if you kill seals and sea lions our transient killer whales rely on those for a majority of their diet so the impacts it will have to the transients are predicted to be huge and then we you know we might have another orca uh jo joining our federal species at risk list so 
the issue is that they're they're using this excuse to kill animals as a way to take the easy way out and not do what the salmon really need, which would be stream restoration, limiting fisheries. I would also say limiting the herring harvest um, because herring are Chinook salmon's number one food source. So it, in summary, I, ho- I hope that made sense, but that's sort of what the article talks about. Yeah. Yeah. And the one that you uh, you lead with, uh, well, I don't know that you lead with it, but uh, you, you do discuss, and it's one that I'm well-versed enough to converse about um, mm-hmm. is the killing of wolves to protect caribou. Um, yeah. And that's one that we've had on the show before. It's one that the Fur Bears as an organization has signed on to letters about and uh, you know done some advocacy with. And that one is is quite remarkable because it's not only like it's it, it is what you have just explained. It is very clearly a case of wolves are killing caribou but they're able to do it more effectively because we've created this environment for them. Oh, yeah, exactly. Which both makes it easier for wolves and harder for caribou. And mm-hmm. the real solution, which is a long-term solution and would not be an overnight solution, is to rewild, to to turn that landscape back to what it should be for both mm-hmm. of those species to coexist. How do you How do you address that then when we say, that is the ideal solution. But in the mm-hmm. case of, you know, if we talk South Selkirk um, uh, is the one I'm most familiar with, um, where they, that was where they were trying to do the fencing, right? The pens? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So even if we make a 100% commitment to changing the landscape back to what it was, that won't have an immediate impact, will it? How do we manage that? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good question. And so this is something that I've actually brought up directly to the government. So in every, in their recovery strategy for caribou, they focus on habitat protection and restoration of old, they're called linear features, but it basically is like old logging roads, um, old ATV tracks, uh, basically any any straight pathway cut through the trees that gives predators access into backcountry caribou habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, this recovery strategy was made in 2014. Caribou were listed in 2000. Um, I assumed that the government had some good data to work with in regards to uh, restoring these roads. Like my first question for them was, at what le- like at what height do trees need to grow in, let's say, an old logging road to act as a barrier for wolves to pass through or to block scent like that's a pretty that's kind of like your your number one question you're Mm going to want to figure out when you start talking about these things and he said to me the director at the time of uh, caribou planning he said wow that's a really good question i don't know and (laughs) so to me it's they write in these recovery plans we must restore we must protect but they don't besides writing it down they don't really do much else to actually follow through with that like restoring an old logging road doesn't mean you have to grow the trees back to um you know that 200 year old aged forest there's different measures you can use to um to to make a barrier in the road so that predators won't pass um for instance First Nations, West Moberly and Soto First Nations have used this a lot on their roads. They like, they'll dig up the road and kind of make it really bumpy with a lot of um, like sort of dips and hills. Um, And they get a machine in there to do all this. And when a wolf comes across that, they're way less likely 
to keep running and using that road. You can also use the, the tactic of falling down some trees through the road so that um, it creates a, a barrier up to like two meters high. Wolves aren't going to pass through that. It will also block scent, block line of sight. Um, so there's tons of different things we can do. It's not, and I think, I think that's also a great excuse to do nothing is when government says, oh, you know, to restore these roads, it's going to take up to 200 years really to grow back. But it's, there's tons of other measures you can do in the meantime to help block access um, of wolves. And especially if you're killing wolves and you're not protecting habitat, I don't care what you say and I don't care how much the government claims they're doing, that that is not a um, genuine effort to recover caribou because at the end of the day, if caribou don't have their intact habitat, what's little left protected, they're never going to survive in the long term. Um, and I think, you know, the practice of penning and killing wolves, I mean, why don't we just put caribou in the zoo? It's basically doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's removing their predators and it's putting them in a cage. Like, that's that's sort of the way I see it. And I imagine I for an animal of that size, they're also not going to learn how to be that animal. With their, it, I, that doesn't sound right in my brain, but I think you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, no, I I do. Yeah, they have to um, they they have to actually go out and harvest lichen from a, like forests and bring it into the pen and they put them in like feeding troughs. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I think in certain situations for certain herds that where there's adequate habitat protection and adequate habitat restoration efforts going on, um, maternity pens can help protect the young. Um, but unless you have every single other recovery um, like method happening, penning and culling wolves um, is not going to work. It's not a long-term solution. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a joke about my therapist in there, but I'm not quite making it yet. <laughs> um, one of the other parts of this that's uh, fascinating is the concept that predators are the problem. And this mm -hmm. is, you you kind of, you, you loop around this and you actually outright say it is, and I've also said this, and I think those of us who are in this field come to this conclusion pretty quickly when you objectively start looking at all this information, that humans are the problem. Mm -hmm. um, whether it is our uh, habitat changes or our policies, I think a great example of this, and I know this is happening in Alberta, I don't know about BC with the wolf culls, um, while they are culling wolves saying they have to do it to protect caribou, they are continuing to allow resource exploitation in the regions where the caribou live. Oh yeah. Um, that's, that's happening. Um, oh gosh, that's happening at a, at a crazy scale here. Um, I have some pretty shocking stats if you want to know sure. some of them. Yeah. So um, in May, the federal environment minister announced that caribou, Southern Mountain caribou, the ones in BC, are facing imminent threats to their recovery. This is one of the most serious um, announcements the federal minister can make. And it's serious because it means that she's one step closer to issuing an emergency order. Um, to protect Southern Mountain Caribou. That emergency order would allow the federal government to take over habitat management and caribou recovery management on BC provincial land. Wow. So the BC government is trying to avoid that, that from happening. It's um, 
because obviously they'd basically be giving up control of their, you know, of a lot of their land. And um, so the BC government, we wanted to see how they would how they responded, right? So this announcement should have been met with really bold action from the province and the province should have, you know, been like, okay, the spotlight's on us. Let's make sure we're doing a good job for caribou. But what they actually did is they approved 83 new cut blocks in the critical habitat of BC's most at-risk herds. And that's from when the announcement was made to September. So that was, I think, in four, three short months, they approved 83 more cup blocks in the eight most at-risk herds. So it just goes to show that, you know, they're saying we're doing all this for caribou, but they are green lighting the destruction of the critical habitat of Southern Mountain Caribou. Another story I've heard, um, and it, it bothers me, I can't remember which animals are involved, but it was on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and the lesson is the part I wanted to get at, but it bothers me, I can't remember the animals. You may know this one. It may have been a bird, a cormorant of some kind, mm-hmm. they said they are devastating fish populations <laughs> yeah. here. So let's move them out of this area uh, to somewhere else and it'll solve the problem. And the biologist said, no, where they are is causing the least amount of harm. Keep them here. And of course they moved them and sure enough, ended up like devastating some fish mm-hmm. stock elsewhere. Um Wow. Yeah. That. And it's, it's, it seems like that's the, it, it's, it's the joke um, that you see uh, on climate change protests is horror movies always, or disaster movies always start with someone ignoring a scientist. Hmm. That's so true. Hey, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and we have that same warning from scientists on this coast, not to kill seals and sea lions because it's going to have an impact on the killer whales. And mm-hmm. And it, it looks like uh, they're going to ignore that science as well. Well, and that's the thing. And, and again, I don't have a science background. My background is journalism. Um, and when I look at this, one of the things that I, I often see and I've asked about, and I don't think anyone's ever really given me an answer that stuck, is when we're looking at this. So we're looking at, again, we'll use the example wolf and caribou. While they are the main players, they're not the only animals or or life forms involved in this equation uh as as we've said you know caribou require a certain type of tree that'll grow a certain type of lichen or um so on and wolves need certain types of environments to to operate as they do and then all of the other animals that interact with it but we're only talking about caribou and wolves um in the case of uh the sea lions which i'm going to be getting into uh, an in-depth conversation about that soon with someone the uh, it's saying, well, the seals and sea lions have to go because they're taking all the fish. But as you yeah. said, well, what's that going to do to the other animals? Mm-hmm. So is it just my observation bias that often in these policy papers, or at the very least the general discussions, we are very, very, very specifically looking at one interaction and ignoring a whole bunch of other interactions that could be impacted? Yeah. Yeah. No, and and I, I think that's... Uh... I think that's like the main point of this all is the government doesn't look that little step further. They're, they're insanely short-sighted um, because they just want to act like they're, they're checking off a box to say, okay, yeah, we did something for caribou this month. We killed some wolves. So their ability to look, to look further, uh, it's, it's just, it's not there. And I know a lot of scientists get quite frustrated because they try to they try to warn um, 
they try to warn the government of what's of what's going to happen. And caribou are an umbrella species. They, if we can protect caribou habitat, we're protecting so many other species as well. Some species that we don't even know about yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're they're kind of the face of it. But when you protect caribou, um, you do wonders for a lot of other animals out there as well. And I think. Um, yeah, I think it just comes down to what humans are willing to give up. And I think we need to just stop pretending that it's other other species that are the issue, because um, I'd say 99% of the time, it's a direct result of how we've somehow altered their predator and prey dynamics. Um, and so to truly fix the problem, we have to fix what we broke. We can't just kill wolves. Why do you think people seem and again this is a very 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 subjective point but there seems to be a large number of people who are comfortable with this kind of management of saying well the predators are causing the problem let's get rid of them and we can talk about it in the context of what you've written with um at-risk species or we can talk about it um uh in what i i deal with more is uh you know coyotes in communities Mm -hmm. or on farmland Mm -hmm. um why do you think people are so willing to say predators are the problem? Let's get rid of them. We've got to do it. Oh, I think, so I think there's, there's two things. I think for the coyotes and sometimes wolves, there's the direct interaction with those predators. So there's people who might live, um, you know, in the backcountry and um, areas that have more wilderness and they might commonly come across these animals, commonly see tracks and, and stuff like that. And so I think there's this, this is kind of what I've run into a lot. I also worked in Africa helping to rehabilitate wild animals. And this is a similar theme that I found is that when you're immersed in it and when, when you, you know, you're, you're seeing coyotes often, you're seeing wolf tracks often, you can hear them you sort of get this feeling that everything's okay and that, you know, well, they like, you know, the, the coyote numbers are, are booming because I, I see them all the time and, and wolves are okay because, you know, I can hear them howl at night, but it's, it's because they're immersed in like possibly this, the, like just a small fraction of the wilderness that's left. So it's hard to, apply the bigger picture to, to that because they, they're in this world where, you know, wilderness is still wilderness and there's still animals and, you know, everything's fine. But in reality, in Canada, um, majority of our wildlife species are declining. Their numbers are declining and we're living through a six mass extinction. So even though it might feel as though it's still, you know, you could kill as many predators and they would keep coming it's, it's not necessarily true. Like our, our ecosystems are unraveling. Um, and until you step back and look at the bigger picture, I think it might be hard to grasp that. Yeah. That's, um, very familiar to me. And again, that's dealing with a lot of, uh, in my field, trappers and, uh, community level wildlife management. Um, and we often hear the refrain, and I know you would have heard this during the grizzly bear, uh, trophy, uh, trophy hunting grizzly bears, uh, big debate because you guys were involved in that one too. Was, um, oh, well, I see more grizzlies now than I ever have, right? Exactly. And 
when you look at how then policy is made, uh, and the Auditor General's report did a wonderful job of breaking down the issues with this, um, the individual wildlife management units or zones, the quota for hunting uh, is determined at by one person in the agency who both takes data and models and the local interpretation of what's going on yeah. and then makes a subjective decision. Mm-hmm. So they're not relying on the science necessarily, mm-hmm. even though they have the science right there. They're saying, well, these 10 people tell me they're right. seeing more grizzly bears. Therefore, there must be more grizzly bears. Right. Which ha- has an obvious fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if one person sees 10 grizzly bears or you could have 10 people see one grizzly bear and so on and so forth. So, yeah. And, and I think also like that, that is very common is these communities just saying, oh, well, we're seeing more wolves and whatnot, but we're also getting access into wilderness. We've never had access to before. Mm-hmm. We're building more roads We're like hunters and trappers are coming up with better ways to lure in species. And, um, and so like it's sort of like a, a bias in our in our sampling, like to compare what we're seeing now to what we saw 10 years ago. You can't compare it on the same scale because our ability to get out into deeper, like more wild areas is far better. And we have more people going out also. Yeah. So like it's this huge sampling bias. And um, the truth is, is we don't really know how um, how many how many species are actually doing. We don't have that good of a system set up here in BC to monitor um, predators, especially. So it's, uh, yeah, it's something that I think we definitely need to to fix. And yeah. Uh, and before we pivot, I did find the article. It was actually someone had shared it in the comments of your article on the Georgia Straits. Okay. And I don't know if that's where I saw it the first time, but I did see it. Uh, this is from Courthouse News Service, February 5th by Karina Brown. The lead, I'll just read that part. The federal government killed thousands of double-crested cormorants in Oregon between 2015 and 2017 and may have caused the collapse of the bird's largest breeding colony in a bungled effort to help young salmon make it to the ocean alive. Meanwhile, state biologists say the birds just moved upriver where each eat three times as much salmon. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, I think I do remember reading that. Like, how, how does that happen? I know. How does everybody who was involved in that not get fired? I know. That's that you raise a very interesting point there. You raise a very interesting point because I like to think like in most workplaces is if you absolutely fail to do the job you were assigned, it's like there should be some sort of repercussion, but we don't see that when it comes to wildlife and species at risk management. Like, um, we had, we had, I don't want to mention names here, but we had someone overseeing caribou in BC and under his supervision, two caribou herds went extinct. Yeah. And I'm, he he ended up leaving um, a few years after that happened or a year after that happened. But like, where is the accountability? Where is the, hmm, okay, this wasn't, this wasn't done right. So we need to fix it. It doesn't exist. Like, because in, in reality, I think a lot of people in BC, a lot, like the minister, the ministry's office, especially the forest ministry's office, office is not actually working to recover caribou they're working to appear like they're recovering caribou uh, and to and to 
kind of get away with doing the absolute bare minimum and just to basically push off extinction until someone else comes into office. It's it's problematic when and I, and I feel terrible. And this is one of the reasons that I don't think I'll ever work for governments is those biologists, the ecologists, everyone involved in these projects have their hands partially tied down, at least by oh, a yeah. government that's primary goal is to get reelected in four years. I mean, that's oh, that's exactly. the primary goal of a politician. And exactly. I don't say that lightly. I have spent a lot of time considering that statement yeah. um, far too much. Again, a therapy joke. But yeah. <laughs> um, I think yeah. like when we consider that and then we apply that to what we're supposed to be making scientific foundations for the next 200 years, scientific, fa- uh, scientifically founded decisions for the next 200 years. That's being led by people who are only truly concerned about the next four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, yeah, yeah, that's that's problematic. Yeah. And I actually know of of cases where really wonderful biologists who whose whole life they've devoted to protecting caribou and recovering caribou, um, they've actually quit. They've quit. They were employed with the government, but they've quit because it was just too hard to watch to watch this all unravel the way it has. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you're only left with the people who maybe don't have the best, like the right experience or um, the best interests. So you're losing those. You kind of lose your your scientists who are in it for the right reasons. Yeah. Um, and now on to a happier note. How do we stave off the end of extinction? Um, <laughs> let's knock that one out yeah. in the next five. Okay. Yeah. Really quickly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have such a short answer for this one. No. Um, <laughs> oh, good. There happens goodness. to be a formula that's taught yeah. to all first year biologists. If you do this, you will be saved. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was an office joke. If there's any office people, but anyways, um, <laughs> yeah. So I think it's, you know, to stop thinking, I don't know if I should say this, but to kind of stop stop playing God and just fix what we broke, like Mm. fix the ecosystems, repair the ecosystems. I think this notion of, oh, but money versus species like that has to end because as we start to lose species, we are pushing ourselves closer to extinction. So it's not a matter of like, oh, I could like, I like snowmobiling in the backcountry versus this species might die. It's, it's, we're destroying our ecosystems and it's also putting us at risk. So when decisions are constantly made for money uh, or for industry's interests, um, that's putting humanity at risk. And we need to acknowledge that and account for that in decision-making. It can no longer just be about jobs versus species because we're a species and the same ecosystems that support wildlife on earth are the ones that support us Mm -hmm. and if those ecosystems are failing to support certain wildlife species they will eventually fail to support us and that's like what we're seeing so i think that needs to be taken into consideration for decision making i think i think we just i don't know i think we just need to mobilize and just really start start yelling and and start making noise and um not letting the government get away with this and calling out all of their you know um, I I don't know if I can swear, but all of their bullshit. Oh, you can swear. I yeah, okay. trust. It's cool. Don't <laughs> worry about that. Trying to find another word for that, and I I failed. But yeah, and then lastly, like I, in BC, this is a good news update type thing. We are we're getting an endangered species law for BC, so finally we'll be able to have some legal protection 
for wildlife that are facing extinction um, it, it, throughout the province because right now on 94% of 94% of BC is uh, provincial land and any species at risk located on provincial land receives virtually zero protection. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Does Wilderness Committee have any kind of action items regarding that currently? Uh, we will. Um, the government is going to be coming out with that law soon, and then we'll be able to write in on what we think about it. We've been, uh, we've been in the process of helping draft this law, and we are really, really hoping that the government hasn't... Um, you know, caved to industry. Uh, so yeah, the the draft for the law should be coming out soon, followed by a public consultation. So I'd really encourage uh, if anyone is interested and if anyone's listening and wants to help uh, to go to our website, wildernesscommittee.org, and you can sign up for our action alerts. And then we sort of mobilize the public and we get the public um, talking about these important issues. Awesome. And I also recommend people in my area go to wildernesscommunity.org and also fill out the form that I did. Tell Doug Ford to leave the Endangered yes. Species Act alone. Yes. Um, yep. Those of us in Ontario are a little terrified of him. Yeah. Uh, he's no, like he's... Voldemort, but less attractive. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Voldemort, that's like a pretty... I, I've got Voldemort's some complex... not a good looking person. <laughs> I've got some complex stuff going on. Uh, cool. Yeah, yeah, like baggage. I could <laughs> yeah. I could set up a baggage store, but you never got over Voldemort. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, come on. Yeah. Come, like the flat nose thing. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Yeah, we're going Seeing on into a his nose. Weird yeah. segues. Yeah, it is. It is weird. Uh, let's sure. talk about animals again for a minute before we okay. end, just to try yeah. and you know a palate cleanser. Um, <laughs> we also have an action item going on the fur bears and I believe wilderness committee signed on to the letter that was sent mm-hmm. about, uh, the killing contests, yes. which is another interesting way that you can see how people view predators, mm-hmm. um, that they're very <laughs> willing to say there's nothing wrong with this because we're allowed to kill them. Yeah. Uh, so it really does paint a picture of how a lot of people view these animals, even though yeah. without them, everything falls in on itself. Exactly. And I think that I think the comment section kind of sums up a lot of the varying viewpoints. People are literally looking at wolves as like evil. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. because they kill young deer and whatnot. But yeah, that's just applying human emotion to a yep. to a species that needs to eat to survive. Yeah, I see the same thing with coyotes. And I've written about this and it it bothers me a great deal is they're very willing to ascribe anthropomorphic emotions to a coyote in that they're luring dogs or they're targeting, yeah. they're doing all of these things intentionally. Mm-hmm. But then when you talk about them just being sentient, you know, loving families, they're mm-hmm. like, no, that's not real. That's, yeah, that's it- you being a hippie. It's like, ah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 totally. It's this like crazy double standard because in reality, I mean, <laughs> humans also eat meat and the way that we get that meat isn't also nice mm-hmm. <laughs> at all. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the argument kind of collapses in on itself there. Uh, but the, that argument is flawed to begin with. True. Because, yeah, you're just applying these human emotions and saying that all wildlife, is, is if they kill other wildlife, is evil. Yeah. <laughs> and they must be, you, we must rid them. <laughs> well, it's, it's like people who are terrified of spiders or bats until they find out how many mosquitoes yeah. <laughs> bats and spiders eat. They're, like, ah, they're not so bad. 
Yeah, and that's that's I think that's entirely another problem is always is like I I remember I fell into this pattern when I first started working was trying to convince people to care about wildlife because of what they do for us. But then it's, it's not because of what they do for us, why we should care. You know, it's just because we are the reason they're suffering. Therefore, shouldn't we take on some of that responsibility and and try to fix what we broke, right? Like it, it shouldn't always come down to, oh, we need to save bees because they um, pollinate our crops. It should just be, we should save bees because we're the reason they're declining. To learn more about Charlotte and the Wilderness Committee, visit wildernesscommittee.org. They can also be found straight across social media by searching for the Wilderness Committee. I want to thank Charlotte for joining us for this interview and all of you for listening. Remember that you can follow me on social media at Defender Radio on Facebook and Twitter and Howie Michael on Instagram. You can also directly support Defender Radio as a patron. Just visit patreon.com slash Defender Radio to learn more. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to be kind, stay informed, and stay strong. <laughs>